0: Hello, folks, and welcome back to the High Performance Human podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and it is my goal to help you upgrade your human performance by guiding you towards improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility, and stress management. If you can work on just one of those, then you'll be on the pathway to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your athletic performance. In fact, in the next few weeks, we will be launching our very first High Performance Human course, we're currently open for applications for the beta version, which lasts for six weeks and with an investment of just £200 per person, significantly below the final cost when the full course is up and running. If you're interested in joining me on this journey, please check out the details in the show notes below or email beth at thetriathloncoach.com. Now, if you've been following me or listening to this podcast for a while, you'll probably know that I'm a huge fan of sleep. Four years ago, I purchased one of the first generation Whoop sleep and fitness trackers, and I can tell you that it has changed my whole approach to training and recovery. And that's why I'm delighted to be joined on this week's podcast by Mike Lombardi, who's a strategic partnerships and performance manager at Whoop. Mike's also a high performance rowing coach, and like many Whoop employees, he started using the product before he joined the company. This is another really insightful conversation. And I hope that we can share some of the enthusiasm that Mike and I have for WHOOP and why it will be a good addition to your sleep and recovery tracking. And again, as with most conversations, we chat about lots of topics, including WHOOP data, sticking to the 70 mile an hour speed limit and why mindfulness is the key to both. We talk about the accuracy of WHOOP and the three pillars of WHOOP data management. Why you should use a smartwatch like a Garmin or a Suunto and a WHOOP together rather than relying on data from just one. Typical WHOOP users and why WHOOP is a behaviour modification tool. We talk about respiratory rate and how it became a key indicator for COVID sufferers. Why adjusting training in response to WHOOP data can help you to be more consistent with your training in the long term. Why regular movement practice can reduce pain and improve your HRV and sleep. We talk about breathing practice and how it can lead to better sleep and recovery. And finally, we talk about the three benefits that you will get if you invest in a WHOOP sleep tracker. So let's get cracking and chat with Mike Lombardi. Welcome to the show, Mike Lombardi.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Well, it's it's a great pleasure actually, and and more so because I have been using the Whoop now for over four years. I bought my first uh, Whoop. I think I'm on version three now, uh, and I bought the Whoop when you still could buy them. Of course, you you have a subs- it's a purely a subscription model now, isn't it? So I guess that must make me a bit of a a bit of an early adopter in terms of this Absolutely. type of technology. Definitely
1: one of the the very few first, let's say, couple thousand who know even knows. Um, I remember it too. Uh, I'm one of those as well. So, it's uh, it's been man, it's been a few years since we we uh, we shifted the subscription, but we appreciate you being on for so long and believing us in, at the beginning.
0: Well, I, I love technology. I'm I'm really interested in that sort of self quantification. I'm currently trialing a constant glucose monitor just to learn things that you can't necessarily learn about yourself just by feel, and it, it's it's interesting how how you can correlate what you feel with what the data actually is and sometimes how they're completely different and sometimes how they, they are the same. And it's nice to, you know, it's nice to have more than one point of reference, isn't it? You know, like like when you're navigating, you triangulate where you are based on three points. And I, I feel like yeah. using the whoop and using your own subjective feel is is probably the best policy for everybody.
1: Yeah. You know, whoops is another data point, like you said, it's it's a valuable data point because these are things that you can't necessarily feel. But hmm. it, the more things that you're putting in, like you said, you're monitoring glucose. Um, there's plenty of times when you can look at a WHOOP recovery score and you say, no way. And then once you kind of get moving, let's say you have a green recovery and you feel fatigued. If there's a reason that you feel fatigued, let's say you're deep in a training block, like, yeah, this makes sense. Maybe this is um, not exactly what I should be doing today. Um, so you don't have to tee off on a day that it's green. You Take a recovery day. It's like your body's truly telling you, take a recovery day. Um, same thing goes the opposite way. You can be in the red and then go hit a personal best. You can run a marathon. Mm. Um, there could be a reason that some, you potentially got a red recovery um, that doesn't mean that you can't perform. So it's another data point that should guide your decision making, but shouldn't be the be all end all of, oh man, I can't do anything because this is what my recovery
0: mm. score is. I. I've said this a few times now, but I think the data from the whoop is a bit like having the speed limit displayed by the side of the road. (laughs) Yeah. You know what the, you know, that's pretty accurate. You know, the speed limit is well in the U S it's a hundred, right? In the UK, the, the national speed limit on the, on the motorway is 70 miles an hour. So you know that the speed limit is, and if you recklessly go above that speed limit and you have no idea how far you're above it, or even if you're above it, you're more than likely going to get a ticket. But if you know that you're traveling at 75 miles an hour and the speed limit is 70, you're mindful about where you are, where the speed limit is, and what you should be doing. And I think the WHOOP data is the same. You know where you're at. You say you might have a red recovery, and so you know that, but you're also mindful of how you're feeling and you're mindful of the sessions you do, and that might adjust the way you're thinking rather than just recklessly carrying on, which you might do if you didn't have any of this data.
1: Right. Absolutely, I've I actually don't think I've heard the um, speed limit one. That's
0: really good. It's uh, it's copyrighted now, but I'll I'll. It's yours,
1: yeah. (laughs) I I give you all credit on that. I haven't heard that one before. I've heard stoplight, but I think speed limits a little bit uh, better because it's you know open to interpretation and you might get caught. Um, So those are those days when you push it in the red and you tweak something. but you know you, you gotta fly too close to the sun sometimes to uh, to figure out what your limit is.
0: Mm. Well, let, let's go back a bit then. So, um, did you start working for Whoop before or after you were a user? After. Okay, so that, oh, that's great. That's um, we used to have mm. uh, in the UK. There was a, a businessman called Victor Kayam. He was an American guy, and he bought the he bought the Remington Razor Company. But the advert was. Always about him there looking clean shaven. He said, I like this product so much, I bought the company. So almost like that. You loved the whoop so much and you were using it in your own daily life that you you and you found it, I guess you found it intriguing that you went to work for them.
1: Yeah, I mean it's kind of perfect. Uh, you know, my backgrounds in performance and physiology, uh, particularly in the rowing world. And after uh the Rio Olympics, I went to business school in Boston and it's a I don't know, half mile from the whoop office. And Uh, I was training a CrossFit team, trying to go to the CrossFit games. And uh, we were one of the first groups to get on WHOOP. So for so long, i had been quantifying these things on myself, trying to, you know, manipulate what I would call like fluid periodization. You know, we have the goal of what we're trying to get at the end of a Mm -hmm. training block, but Mm -hmm. just because it's written doesn't mean we should do it. And what days should we push and what days do we need to pull back to um, be consistent and not miss any training days? I'd rather take a day or two here uh, to prevent something from happening mm. than losing two to four weeks later. Um, and that's when it becomes damning, but I would say particularly like an endurance and power sports, you don't get that time back. Um, so if you can nip it before it gets going, then that's great. So, um, when I saw whoop, I was like, wow, this is amazing that now I don't actually have to think about this stuff anymore. I can still look at the other things I was looking at, you know, spo two and, and things like that, that we don't necessarily look at, but, um, it really makes it a lot easier because you do believe in the product and it, um, it tells you a lot about what you don't know about yourself.
0: Do you think that, um, cause whoops, uh, you know, it's not been around for that long. So if you were in the rowing sphere until 2016, I guess what was just getting going then really wasn't it commercially. How do you think it would have helped, um, your rowers as a coach and how would it have helped you in terms of uh, in terms of the training and understanding how people respond into the training
1: so i think it would have probably functioned a lot the same way in terms of you know if we're looking at all these other pieces that you kind of mentioned at the beginning of one how do you feel how much did you sleep now we would be taking the guesswork out of the sleep before it's what time do you think you went to bed what time did you wake up mm-hmm. Um, you know, like urine color, mood for women, it's, you know, like where are we in the menstrual cycle, things like that um, to adjust training. Um, now, I think we, I would probably look at the whoop data point and then look at how heart rate variability is trending, how's the resting heart rate trending, what's the work that's been done. So, to some degree, I, I, this is where it's all about how an athlete responds. Sometimes too much data is not a good thing, sometimes it's a great thing. Um, but understanding that it's just a piece of the puzzle because sometimes you got to do work right. Um, if it's race day and you have a red recovery, you still have to show up and race. So knowing which days to kind of lean on and still accomplish something challenging, um, even if somebody's in the red. If if we're seeing mo- people in the uh, the red multiple days, that's when I'd say maybe we're doing something off. We need to fix it. One day shouldn't make or break anything. Um, it's just one day, but really looking at the trends of where things are going, or if you see a red recovery and then somebody's eyes are, you know, there's nothing there. Okay. Why don't we go for a swim or something? <laughs> like let's, let's pull mm-hmm. back. Um, so it'd be a lot the same. Um, I've actually, you know, I'm working with a couple of the GP rowers, um, who are Princeton guys, um, that, you know, I think, well, will default uh, rowing at all?
0: A little, but I probably I wouldn't know many of the current okay. names. I don't think.
1: I was going to say Tom George, who you know, he's a, goes under five forty for two k. Um, <laughs> just won the European Championships in the eight. Um, I know he's he's been utilizing Whoop a bit recently, um, and a lot of guys on the U.S. team as well. So, and and women. So, I think when you're within a training group, it's different. So Good. let me. You asked me how would I use it. From a coaching perspective then you can start to manipulate the training plan and you can help your athletes maximize their recovery understand the best training for them does strength training hurt them more does this type of aerobic or anaerobic training hurt them more how much do they need to recover for that and what's the best way to recover when you're an athlete that's in a system and you have to follow a training plan with a coach that's let's say not using this data um what you need to use Whoop for is maximizing your recovery. So you're going to have to show up and do the work. And what you need to do is figure out what am I doing in the times that I'm not in a train session that I can bring myself back to as near 100 percent as possible on a regular basis. Hmm. And that's where you know utilizing the Whoop journal and these sort of micro experiments on yourself is yeah. incredibly valuable because you're like, okay, this is it. when I drink this much water at this kind of cadence that's huge. When I get to bed at this time, that's money. If I get to bed a little bit too late, mm. I'm not going to get the quality of sleep that I need. And, uh, you know, I need to take melatonin, but I need to do it this far out. I need to stop eating at this point, or I need to eat yeah. this at this point. Like yeah. all that adds up. And then you start tinkering. you like, okay, I've got the magical formula for me. Now what you do is probably completely different from someone that your training partner. Mm. So it's, it's good to measure and know.
0: Yeah. And if I think about some of the elite coaches I've had from lots of different sports, you know, when when you have people in a program all the time, you, I've come to realize that these guys have an intuitive feel for their athletes. When they see them walk into the training room, when they see them walk onto the park, you can tell by body language, by faced expressions, by engagement, how people are doing can't you but as you say this is just another data point um to enhance that in the same way that you know you know somebody's running well or rowing well but then you do a test on them and you that just confirms it doesn't it Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe what we should do for listeners who haven't really heard about the whoop previously and um are not really conversant with this sort of technology let's let's rewind and talk about what the whoop actually does some of the basic things that it it measures and then we can talk about how it measures them and you know how that how that data has been validated so that people have confidence that it's actually accurate so
1: yeah absolutely so whoop for everyone that's been listening and has no idea what we're even talking about uh it's a wearable device you can wear it we, we say on the wrist, it's wrist, bicep, arm, really anywhere that you can keep it in flush contact with your skin. Um, and we're constantly pulling data. It has no face. It doesn't have a watch face. It's not gonna tell you time. There's nothing on it. It connects via Bluetooth to the Whoop app and all everything is processed within the app and within the cloud. So our servers are constantly pulling your data and processing this information. So there's three main pillars of Whoop. There's strain which is effectively internal load. So how hard your heart is working throughout the entire day. A lot of wearables are measuring steps. They're measuring how far you're going, how fast you're going, things like that. What we're looking at is, you know, if you have a busy day, what does that look like? If you're, you know, run around, if you're on kid duty and you've also got to make dinner and get your training in and work and all this stuff. Um, Like that's real stress and strain that you're putting on your body. And we're measuring that. So there's that. And then we're also measuring your training. So um, what does the full picture look like for you? Um, So Simon, if you and I did the same 10K run, same pace, same recovery score, we're probably going to have different strain scores because our physiology is different and how that same exact output affects us is going to be different. So that's really kind of strain is a byproduct of everything that happens in the day. And it's cool to look at and understand. And for us, the scale is zero to 21.
0: Can I just jump in there then, Mike? Because if I have one, if I and I've loved wearing this product, you know, I'll say I've been wearing it for four years and I've had ample ample opportunity now to decide I'm not going to bother with it, but I keep coming back to it. Um, But if I have one frustration, it's that, Sometimes I feel like the the strain part of it and the heart rate measuring from the wrist is um, is is off, and it overestimates what i 've been doing. You know I have a intuitive feel for how hard i 'm working when i 'm running or cycling. I know where my aerobic threshold is, and sometimes the the, the wrist strap will have me working at a heart rate of one hundred and fifty or one hundred and sixty when my garmin or my sunto chest strap. Tells me that I'm around 120, and I know that's probably more accurate because of the way I'm breathing and just just some of the feeling that I get. And so then I, I feel it well, if it's if it's given me you know 20 beats per minute higher over a three hour bike ride, and bearing in mind that my hands are on the bars at this time, so there's not a lot of moving around while I'm mm. running, um, it, it then giving me a higher strain for the day. And of course, that's going to be then calculated into the mix of how well I'm recovering, etc., etc. So. It, and I know that, you know, I've, I've seen other people writing about this. Is, is that something you experience regularly? And what, what are the workarounds for that to get more accurate data?
1: So the, the key is to make sure, so I, uh, I don't particularly experience that. Um, if anything, I'm like, uh, maybe I think I'm like a superhuman because my strain doesn't accumulate. Um, but I know I'm not as fit as I used to be, so I know that that's not true. So let's use the running one first. So, if there's any of the green light showing, if there's daylight getting in, you're going to get erroneous data, in which case the heartbeat might be high. Mm -hmm. Keys then are either you can flip it to the inside. So, when I cycle, um, I either go further up the arm, I go bicep, or I go inside of the wrist. Mm -hmm. Again, as long as it's completely flush against the skin, it's completely fine. Cycling is one of those things where I would suggest going further up on the arm um, if you can, just Mm -hmm. because that position. Um and potential vibration on the road can make the data uh, not as clean as let's say if you're just on a trainer um or something like or you know a watt bike, something like that. Uh-huh. So um bicep I would suggest for most endurance athletes, honestly. Uh-huh. Um as a lot of endurance athletes tend to be pretty lean too. So the closer we can get the strap to your heart, the more accurate that's gonna be. Now if, at rest we're like 99.9% accurate Mm -hmm. when we start moving. It's probably about 96 to 97, depending on the activity. So, and and sometimes it is 99%. It really depends on, on how much movement's happening. Uh, Each person's body type, you know, skin tone, Mm -hmm. you know, body fat percentage, stuff like that. So uh, if you're, if you're unsure, go bicep, no question.
0: All right. You honestly forget it's there. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'll, it's, I'll it's, try that. I mean I you know, I read I don't know if you saw DC Rainmaker, as well known within the triathlon world because he does reviews on just about mm-hmm. every product and he was pretty scathing of it, of the whoop, based on the heart rate and I've had a lot of people that when I've, when I've been talking about this, they're going, oh yeah, but DC Rainmaker says that it's not very good. So, you know, I think it's a waste of time. I mean, and personally, I would say, you know, make your own mind up as to it, you know, and think about all the benefits you're talking about, heart rate data, whereas the sleep benefits and all this other stuff and, and the behavioral choices, which we'll come on to later, uh, in my mind, far outweigh, um, some, some heart rate data that might be a little erroneous at, on certain sessions, but, um, you know, it's, he's got a big reach and a big influence and that sort of thing tends to stick, doesn't it? Unfortunately, I, I was, yeah. with, I was with another product where he, he, um, he gave us the, uh, a bad write-up as well. And it, it's, um, it's amazing how that sort of stuff sticks in people's minds.
1: You know, that's, it's completely true in terms of things get in people's minds I'm like, Oh, okay. Because they don't have enough time to experience it for themselves. And I think the endurance community is unique in the sense that um, maybe it's old school and like this, the sports science is just coming along and um, people are looking at it as like, I either need to wear a Garmin or mm-hmm. I need to wear a whoop. we both because yeah. they're fundamentally different mm-hmm. data sets. So, Like if you want to, like nothing's going to beat a chest strap, right? That's just the truth. If you, if you are gung ho on heart rate, you should definitely wear a chest strap and you're serious about that stuff where our heart rate is important is understanding your heart rate in context of the day and relative to yourself. Mm -hmm. So, um, strain is an internal, like internal load. All this other stuff is external pace, you know, just a heartbeat, right? But we're quantifying and like, how hard is that for you and how hard is your body and heart working on a given day where literally nothing else can look at that and you said okay so you get a little bit of um a higher uh heart rate on a training session really where that where strain comes in is it adds time to your sleep need mm. okay so um you could just get a few more minutes of sleep and that takes care of that but at the same time uh you know recovery isn't necessarily. Really, sleep performance isn't the main metric of recovery.
0: Well, I have an interesting question on that. It was one of the ones I was going to come back to later, but while we're on it, sleep need. There are mm-hmm. times, and particularly I, I can find this a little demotivating sometimes when the whoop says, you need more sleep, you know, you're, you're falling behind. You, you mm-hmm. were, Your sleep performance for last night was 69% and 70% is the minimum threshold for you to get by, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I will go through a day sometimes... When the whoop tells me I've had six hours of sleep i've been in bed for eight hours, but it tells me i've been awake for two hours um but i've had six hours' sleep, but at no point during that day do I feel well I need to take a nap i mean i don't i I drink one cup of coffee in the morning, and that's it now I finish it at you know ten o'clock mostly, so it's not like I'm fueled by caffeine, and I'm on the go all the time but there are times when um what whoop's telling me my sleep need is. Uh, again, doesn't correlate with how I feel. So again, that, again, that, that's that's probably another tick in the box of using multiple metrics and data sets rather than just the one, isn't it? But um, yeah, I was curious sure. how it assesses my sleep need. Mm-hmm.
1: So just to keep going uh, back to like the pillars, the three pillars of whoop are strain, recovery, mm. uh, which is a percentage of 0 to 100% of basically how ready your body is to take on the day, and sleep. So we're measuring your sleep or giving you what we think your sleep need is as, and your sleep performance, which is how much sleep you got uh, divided by how much sleep we said you needed. So that's also a percentage. Mm -hmm. So sleep need, what we're doing is we're taking your last 30 days of actual sleep. That's the baseline that we're operating off of. Then we're taking however much strain you've been accumulating. We add that. So you had a high strain day, we're going to add 20 minutes. Um, So let's say you started seven and a half hours as your baseline add 20 minutes okay we're up to 750 every time you don't get 100% of your sleep need you uh, accrue sleep debt so effectively when you don't get that 100% we're going to add a few more minutes let's say you've been getting 85% of your sleep need let's add another 25 minutes okay we're well over 8 hours now um and when you take naps you said you don't take any which is fine um i think most adults probably don't have time to take naps during the week Um, but if you maybe squeeze one in on the weekend, that's going to reduce some of that, that sleep need. So Mm -hmm. any sort of nap or getting over 100% of your sleep need is going to bring that number down. Again, think of it like the stop or the, uh, the speed limit in a perfect world. Yeah. You could get nine hours of sleep, um, 10 hours of sleep. Uh, realistically, most adults are probably going to get between six and a half and eight. So Mm -hmm. finding that sweet spot and maximizing that quality of sleep. So you said, I got six hours of sleep. I didn't feel tired. I felt pretty good. Um, I, th- most people, once you kind of started getting on this regulated sleep pattern, if you can get on a pretty normal bed and wake time, hmm. you're going to start to be able to maximize your slow wave sleep, your REM sleep, because it's going to be predictable. You're going to be in this rhythm, this circadian rhythm um, where your body knows oh, time to shut it down. And when it can predict that sort of going to bedtime, uh, you can get a huge chunk of that slow wave sleep. So regenerating the muscles,
2: Mm.
1: growth hormone, all that stuff. Um, whereas if you don't do that, you're going to miss out on a lot of that slow wave sleep. So it's all about packing the most punch in the sleep that you're getting. Mm. Um, as opposed to being like, I really need to get those 10 hours of sleep. It's how do I get, seven hours of sleep with 60% combined of REM and slowly sleep. That's yeah. real. you can wake up and be like, man, let's take on the day. I'm going to go kick some ass. Like that's really what you're trying to figure out with whoop. Mm. Not let me spend half of my life in bed.
0: Now, and I, and I have noticed that. And, you know, you talked about those, um, that little journal where you can, you, you know, you can have a little checklist and every morning it said, did you fly yesterday? Um, uh, what, did you have any caffeine? When did you stop drinking caffeine? Did you, view a a screen before you went to bed did you view did you read an on-screen so like um i've i've one of the behavioral changes i've made is to read a book before i go to bed and shut down my computers a couple of hours before and after a while you know that monthly performance report it'll tell you you know on 68 percent of occasions when you said you read before bed your rem sleep was improved so that's that would be a that would be a positive behavioral change on Seventy-five percent of occasions when you said you had three drinks in an three alcoholic drinks in an evening, your um, slow wave sleep was much less. So that would be, an, and I think most most of the people that I've spoken to are whoop users have said that, that one of the hugest behavioural changes they've or lessons they've learned and behavioural changes have made is about consumption of alcohol in quantity and timing before bedtime, mm-hmm. which is huge. And I, I remember hearing about this. Oh, maybe. 15 years ago from a Dutch guy who was using the uh, mega wave thing to measure um, rugby players. And he talked about the consumption of alcohol and what happened if you had it close to bedtime or not close to, and it stuck with me ever since. And the, and the whoop tends to confirm that, that um, data.
1: For sure. This is where I, um, I will also tell people figure out what you metabolize though. Um, yeah. you know, I'm certainly not advocating for anybody drinking, uh, in excess or anything. Uh, If I have like two to three glasses of red wine,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. probably like two and a half, like finish two and two and change hours before I'm going to go to bed, my HRV is going to skyrocket. Guaranteed. It's a guarantee. I have, at first it seemed like a fluke and now it is like a guaranteed thing. Like not every day, but like every now and again, it's, there's a hundred data points proving this. Um, But if I have like a beer, doesn't matter when, Wow, I will, my recovery will tank. So that's truly like understanding what your body can Mm -hmm. handle. So if you're going to have a good time, you know, (laughs) you don't have to feel terrible the next day. You can, you know, just understand what you should be having. So that's kind of like the benefit is it's not, it's not like the guardrails on your life. It's just guiding principles and and understanding more Mm -hmm. what behaviors best benefit you. And Hey, you want to lean into some things that you know, aren't going to great but it's kind of cool to know like great i'm gonna go out with my friends and we're gonna tailgate the red sox game and i'm gonna feel awful tomorrow but you know you're going to so um through data
0: (laughs) well it's interesting you say that because i'm a red wine fan and i've noticed that a red red wine with with my evening meal is fine if i have another glass you know if i've opened a particularly nice bottle i decide to have another glass that that has a negative effect Whereas if I if I was to have a couple a couple of three large gin and tonics, it doesn't seem to affect me as much. So, you know, there's the, there's the individual differences. And I know from monitoring blood glucose that you can, you know, there's that whole Israeli study on identical twins, isn't there, where one ate a banana and got a huge spike in blood sugar and the other one had a banana and got no spike. So mm-hmm. individual differences, which is something we're always, you know, conversant of as coaches, isn't it, about planning for the individual? For sure.
1: Yeah, like how, in the team environment, obviously there's going to be a framework, but how much can you start to individualize a bit of it, right? There's some probably basic work that needs to happen, but you understand that each person has different gaps in their physiology and different needs. And um, to ultimately achieve the best performance out of your whole team and each individual, there has to be a level of personalization, even within a, a team training environment.
0: Mm. Well, I know you've done some, you've been doing some uh, um, research on that, which I'd like to come back to in a minute. But I just wanted to go back to the three pillars. Then, so we've got strain. Mm. We've talked about the measurement of that. We've got recovery, which is based around HRV and also resting heart rate. And I, I think that definitely the sleep resting heart rate. You know, mo- most of us who wear a chest strap for. Um, aerobic activities um, wouldn't be a fan of going to sleep in a chest strap. So you, you and that, and that one seems to be pretty good there. And then you've got, um, and then you've got your sleep. And so then the next question, particularly around sleep is, well, how accurate is this data? You know, I, I know you've got some validation studies done and we'll mm-hmm. make a note, we'll put a, a reference to those in the show notes so people can see the, um the, the, the research data, but you know, how accurate is this? Cause I've spoken to some sleep experts who dismiss the, who who seem to dismiss the ability to measure REM sleep and slow wave sleep accurately.
1: Um, So it's incredibly accurate. Um, You know, when you look at the excerpts and and the actual publications um, you know, you can see the exact numbers, but um, besides being in a sleep lab, this is as good as this is going to like, this is as high as it can get. And, This has been whoops main value proposition from the start is, uh, sleep. We, you know, we stage sleep incredibly well. Our data analytics team, uh, is incredible. And that has been probably the foremost pillar. You know, this started as measuring sleep and understanding how ready your body is taken on strain came later. Um, so the the bread and butter is really measuring sleep, staging it, understanding when you're asleep, what stage of sleep you're in, when you're awake, disturbances, respiratory rate, um, you know your heart rate, heart rate variability. When when's the right time to measure it to give accurate um, feedback on your recovery score? So um, we've always gone the long route, and this is what differentiates Whoop is instead of coming out and be like, hey, we we kind of have this feature that's half baked, we will go through. Vigorous testing and try and poke holes in it as much as possible and make sure that it's bulletproof if we're making any sort of improvement. So it's always based in science. It's always, you know, third party validated. So there's a reason that we went to, you know, some of the world renowned sleep institutions to help us validate this technology.
0: I mean, it always makes me think when you see the equipment that they use to measure your sleep in the lab. Firstly, you know, whenever I go to a hotel or sleep in a strange place, I never sleep very well the first night. So if you were put him in a lab, I'm, I'm guaranteed that I'm not going to sleep very well. Then if he's going to stick electrodes <laughs> all over my head, I, I fail to understand how anybody can actually get a decent night's sleep. Um, with that. So how, how, you know, when, when people say, "Oh yeah, but this is the most accurate measure way of measuring sleep. It might be, but if you sleep pretty rubbish, it's not going to give you a real life, um, a portrayal of how that person's actually sleeping
1: well that's definitely fair and i think that there's enough kind of versions of at-home sleep tests as well you know we we have a full research team right like that's there's a team that's like a field studies validation always testing your things movements how do we improve every aspect of the product and, and data set um so you know i think we've kind of refined it on our side but I also trust the sleep institutions like that's that's their job to to do this. so they have a data set that's big enough they they know exactly what they're doing and how they they're gonna measure you know whoop versus anything
0: else. Who are the typical whoop users then? I mean, Who are I guess, the typical ones? Yeah. Well let's well, let's, talk, think, let's talk let's talk about some of let's ahead. talk about some of the whoop users. So there's there's people like you and me who are you know maybe recreational sports people now interested in our performance, but there's there's a lot of people who are using Whoop that perhaps aren't involved in sport, and there's also some very high level people. So let's let's expand on those a little bit more.
1: For sure. So Whoop started as like an elite athlete tool. And you know, the first couple of people on were LeBron, James, and Michael Phelps. So, this was a long time ago. And, you know, as we've kind of shifted and different populations have taken to whoop. So, like CrossFit, the functional fitness community, I'll say CrossFit specifically, um, was a community that we didn't necessarily expect um, to take to whoop. And yet they became one of our most devoted groups. Um, really what you're looking at is people that I'll give a general overview. It's people that aren't professional athletes, but still identify with an activity, um, as like a major part of like their purpose. So yeah. Do you, do weightlifting? Do you cycle? Are you an endurance athlete? Do you do triathlons? You're not a pro, but it's still a major part of your identity and you're probably a professional in something else and have a bunch of other things on your plate. Um, but what you want to do is you want to, maximize your time with the thing that you love so if it is cycling or swimming or volleyball whatever it is how can you you know put all these other things in place so that when you get your hour two hours how much time you you have for yourself um that you put the best out there so it really is anything so pick any activity that in the world that you're possibly thinking of that person's on whoop and at different levels right um you've got people that are young, you know, we don't, uh, generally say for people to like under 18 to hop on and more so through like a puberty and hormones and all that kind of stuff. Um, so let's say the, the college athlete is really kind of where we're starting. And it goes up to, you know, my parents are on, they're 70 years old. Um, and they've retired and they like to play golf. So it's like, well, how much should I take a day off from golf? My body kind of like using the data for whatever you want to do So it's truly all walks of life. So we did start at this elite athlete. And now we want Whoop to be for everybody um, because everybody can measure and improve something. And it's just about, and you and I were talking about this before, it's a behavior modification tool. Ultimately what Whoop is, it's a behavior modification tool for anybody. So um, if you're willing to measure where you are now, you can make real tangible improvements that that are gonna help your quality of your life and your health in a way that's unique and different from anything. So understanding the, like we've talked about the alcohol, but you know, that journal has hundreds of different possible entries for, you know, your behaviors. So what are these things that you can do to be getting better sleep? We know how important sleep is just for long-term health and getting slow wave sleep, you know, and fighting things like dementia and other, uh, you know, memory mm-hmm. issues like stuff like that. You know, how can, how can we help that? How can we help, the first responder population who's on shift or work um surgeons you know high pressure jobs people that work in restaurants like i could go on and on and on like every all every walk of life is really on whoop and it's so cool to hear all their different stories so it is for everyone now
0: we uh, we were talking about some of the data you measure one of the things i've been most impressed with has been the the fact that you I know you were measuring this before, but you weren't necessarily sharing it. But then as COVID, um, started to sort of take hold, um, it became more apparent that respiratory rate was a huge predictor. And there's some fantastic stories. We can talk about those, but there's also articles and, and blog posts on the, uh, and, and parts podcasting there of, of some of the people who've mm-hmm. benefited from that. But, um, That that's that's one. I would say that's one thing that's almost like a public good in terms of understanding respiratory rate in uh, as as an early predictor of there might be something wrong with you. Is it Nick Watney, the golfer, who was the the one that you've talked about most and perhaps the early indicator of that?
1: Yeah, and that's it's it's an interesting thing. So respiratory rate's always been part of it, Um, and you know, full disclaimer here: a a jump in respiratory rate does not mean you have COVID. They Mm -hmm. could be any of a number of things. you could have just been an airplane. You could be super dehydrated. The air quality could be bad. It could be a lot of things. Um, so Nick Wadney is a professional golfer. This is right when the tour was, PGA Tour was getting started again. I uh, took a COVID test. He was negative. Looked at his whoop data. He had a substantial spike in his respiratory rate. He said, hey, I feel fine, but test me again. And he tested positive and he withdrew from the tournament. So, uh, you know, I think Rory said that he basically saved the tour by, by doing that. And, you know, we get stories like that all the time. So it's respiratory rates is kind of something to measure because in normal circumstances, it's a pretty boring data point. It should be pretty flat. Um, So when you do get a substantial jump, it is, you know, cause to think about what's happening um, and maybe just kind of chill out for a day. Mm. So that that that's one of those things that you know you just kind of can look at the trend lines uh, within your own WHOOP data. Are you in a normal range, uh, or have you like really jumped three points?
0: Mm. What you're talking about there, and, and what we've mentioned before about benchmarks and understanding your own data. My, my resting heart rate is pretty low. It's usually usually around the thirty-eight to forty mark. But I did wow. notice, you know, um, I had a 10% jump. So uh, just after Christmas, I had, a, I had a period of time when I just wasn't feeling it. You know, I wasn't 100%. I was, I was getting quite... A, I had one week when I had six out of seven days of um, red recoveries, low heart rate variability it felt like disturbed sleep i wasn't doing a great deal of training but i think it was a hangover from something else but i was i was worried that i was coming down with with covid although my respiratory rate was fine but my resting heart rate was definitely up by around 44 45 so you know the first thing to do was to to just to back off the training and um but but it's just again it's just interesting knowing that data isn't it it correlated with how i was feeling and and Mm -hmm. created a behavioral change rather than just battering on thinking, well, you know, I've got training to do, so I'll do it. Exactly.
1: And and sometimes you don't feel it, right? That's the kind of interesting thing is, Mm. um, you know, you see a jump in heart rate, resting heart rate, and, you know, a decrease in heart rate variability. Okay. Did I have a hard session yesterday? Yeah, maybe. Um, That makes sense. But if you kind of continue along that path, maybe... Uh, if it's getting worse, hypothetically, maybe you're coming down with something that you just don't know yet, mm. or you're going the road of, um, well, I guess. How do you think about it? I I think there's not overtraining, there's under recovery. But oh yeah, um, yeah.
0: I I yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you can do the same training week in and week out. Some days you breeze through it, and other times. Um, it's just too much. But then, when you look at the whole picture, you you're traveling a bit more. You're working longer hours. You're not mm-hmm. getting as much sleep, so you, you're under recovering. So I, I totally agree there. Yeah.
1: So it's you're just going down this road of under recovery, yeah. and you need to pull back. So that's really um, however you're thinking about it. So getting back to what we talked about earlier, pull back a day or two, or even five. Right? If five days saves you six weeks, it's worth it.
0: Yeah, and. I mentioned the research that you've been doing. Um, Dan Plews is a, is a good friend of mine. I've known Dan for a long time. I used to coach him. Um, he's he's Olympic physiologist, works with the rowers mm-hmm. over in New Zealand. I know he's been collaborating with the WHOOP. And Dan did some research last year where he was looking at um, a structured plan versus a dynamic plan, which was adjusted based on HRV. And Dan's done a lot of research on HRV as well. Mm-hmm and looking at the differences. And then I know you've done your own, um, you've done your own research, haven't you, with the running group? Yep. Um, is it the Tracksmith group? Uh, uh, Tracksmith Mary, was part is, of it, yeah. Mary Kane, has she been involved in it mm-hmm. there? And, and yeah, so, she
1: helped with the training program,
0: yeah. Yeah, and so you've you've, you've done a podcast. And I remember, so I did a podcast with Dan, and we talked about that, that sort of um, a dynamic program, adjusting based on HRV results, and then the follow-up there. And, I love that whole thing about. Wouldn't you rather miss a couple of days now than two or three weeks further down? Of course, you have to have a, you have to have long term thinking in order to be able to make decisions like that. Most people right. don't. But um, again, when you've got supportive data like this, plus research that shows that in in the long run you, you'll actually end up fitter. And I think that other the other bit that came out of it was if you've constantly got training when you've got low hrv but but you're following the program then you more you may be more prone to injury in the long term as well
1: for sure um yeah i think that's that you're you just start living in this state of under recovery and this is where people who aren't measuring these things you know your body just adapts to a lower level of performance but you think it's a hundred percent so let's say you're not getting enough sleep um you're pushing it a little too hard you're not taking the right food in, you know you're doing all these things a little bit wrong but you show up and you give your one hundred percent, or what you think it is, and maybe that's seventy percent of your potential. You just don't know. So you know, we measure so many other things. It's crazy not to. to it's just crazy not to know. I guess is, is at this point. It's so easy to know. You just have to be to be willing to listen to what the data is telling you a little bit.
0: I'm interested. Let's go back to CrossFit a little bit because I, mm-hmm. you know, whilst I have cross trained for years and. Uh, I wish I'd. Uh, I wish I'd thought of that concept of CrossFit when it first came out. <laughs> because you know we used to do a lot of climbing ropes and a little assault course things and everything, um, just as part of our rugby training. But um, yeah, maybe I should have gone down that road. But um, <laughs> what one of the things that I um, remember reading about with CrossFit was this: is you had um, or CrossFit generally had this. Uh, did did they have the. Um, their little icon was Uncle Rabdo, and there was a lot of people that were talking about Rabdo and you know how it was sort of almost a, a badge of honor to have that, which um, to me seems to go against totally against what the Whoops trying to introduce is better recovery. So, is that is that just a section of the uh, the CrossFit community, or or is that is that a was that a um, a trait, a characteristic of, of early members of CrossFit or, or is that something that just needs to change That propensity uh, to so overdo things?
1: I think anybody can overdo things. Um, you know, it's what I guess I would say that that's not true of the CrossFit community anymore. It's so based in science and, hmm. you know, we have our partnership with, with CrossFit, um, again, to add m- even more, you know, data-driven science around, sleep and recovery to the training methodology. So, um, you know, CrossFit when it's done correctly and led by a a good coach, um, is outstanding. Um, you know, I think like anything, um, quality control can be hard when you grow really fast. So you could go to a person, you know, you can go to a gold Gym or I don't, you know, Virgin active or whatever, whatever gyms are out there, anytime fitness. I don't know what's available anywhere in the world, but you know, you get a personal trainer who just sat down, did a weekend course, and then they're telling you what to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, So you're more you're more likely to get injured or rabdo by somebody not understanding programming and, and trying to run you some through something um, than through CrossFit. And actually, I, I believe they won a lawsuit um, over like NASM or someone else trying to sue them, saying that you get like CrossFit leads to more injuries. Um, but when it's done well, like people people need like anything. And during, if you want to be a rower, cyclist, triathlete, you don't look at what the top of the world is doing and say, mm-hmm. I need to go try and do that workout. Mm-hmm. You don't say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do two by six k at X split on the erg. And because I saw Tom George do it. No, like, have you even rode before? First off, <laughs> like don't, don't, it's the same thing. It's the same thing I'd say to anybody. Hey, I haven't worked out in six months. Um, I'm going to try and do Murph, and I'll say, no, how about you see if you can run a mile first, like very basic. So, um, just guiding people. This is, this is where, you know, I think coaching is becoming more AI driven, but you still need a coach, hmm. um, and the human element and, and telling, telling people how to move better. Like movement as a skill is underrated in everything oh, well. and, um, like You can run better, you can row better, you can cycle better, you can swim, you can lift weights, you can do an air squat, push up, pull up, any of it. There's technique, like there's points of performance for all of these things. So um, I think when people are are like, I just have to get the work in um, because I want to get my heart rate up, that's usually what happens. And they're like, oh, that's the person that gets, I got a knee problem from doing CrossFit or my back hurts from rowing. It's like, yeah, because you're, I don't even know what you're doing. Like, I wouldn't describe what you're doing as rowing. So, like, that type of thing. And you can't control everybody. You know, you see them in the big box gyms. Mm. They hop on the rowing machine. They hop on the treadmill. And you're like, oh, man, it's just a matter of time.
0: Interesting what you say about movement. I've had two – oh, well, I've had Kelly Starrett on recently. So, Kelly's a oh, big – He's a, he's a big, big wheel in the CrossFit industry, isn't he? And he's got a lot of followers. Oh. And we talked all about movement and uh, and everything that he does. And then I had a guy called Shane Benzy. Uh, an English guy who's written a book called The Lost Art of Running and Shane doesn't call himself a running coach he talks about being a movement coach and he said you know yeah. if you want to get fast as a runner you've got to learn to you've got to learn to move better first before you start adding all those intervals. Um, I also had a guy called Malcolm Brown who's a um, top endurance coach worked with the Brownlees um, and a lot of the British triathletes to the Olympic medals but worked with Kelly Holmes and Paula Radcliffe as well and you know, he talks about the basics of running is enjoy running and, w- and move well before you start learning to run fast. So those, those themes keep coming back from elite coaches. And I, I still I still find it hard to believe why people don't pick up on these messages. You know, if you want messages to come down from the top that you need to learn to move better before you train hard, and yet everybody still thinks, yeah, but what do they know? I'm just going to train hard. <laughs> um, but that's it, right?
1: It's, it's this sort of ego that comes with, okay, I know that this is out there, but I think I know better. Uh, Sometimes maybe you're right. When it comes to like your uh, training plan, hey, I know my physiology, what my gaps are, and maybe you've done some sort of testing to understand this, but the average person doesn't know that. And if you, you know, you can't make it, I'll use Kelly as an example here. You don't become like, like, a PhD and world renowned by mm-hmm. selling BS. Like Kelly is amazing. And if you, for anybody, if you haven't listened to Kelly Starrett at speak, um, on anything like I, I'll plug him right now. Follow the ready state on Instagram, watch their stuff, old mobility, wide stuff. He will probably fix nagging problems that you have. and you just have accepted as part of your life. So, um, he's, he's truly amazing. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll give a story of uh, my wife. So my wife's a 2012 Olympian for USA women's pair. Um, And after 2012 games, she got like really hurt and it was like a hip back thing. Couldn't totally figure it out. You had doctors that said, you got to get surgery. You got to, you know, like um, she couldn't even sit, like we couldn't go out to eat. She couldn't sit in a car for 10 minutes. Right. Went to California for two weeks, worked with uh, Kelly Starrett and Brian McKenzie. No, she just said, you're moving terribly. We're just going to fix your movement patterns. And something that existed as a chronic injury for a year was gone in two weeks and has never come back. Hmm. So like, you know, everybody that's so quick to cut you open or, you know, sell you on, you need this, this, and this work on your body. Like, (laughs) like. If you do, if you, if all you do is cycle, it, like you're going to have imbalances. So if you do is run, you're going to have imbalances, row, all this stuff. Like you need to do complementary and supplementary work to keep your body in running con- or you know, in an operating condition. And that has to be part of the program. So if you have to cut time, I would say it, if you have to cut time from the actual work, work mm-hmm. session, what you're defining as work now to be able to take care of yourself with a little, this other maintenance stuff, you probably have to do it. Um, especially as you get older, I I lie to myself all the time. It's like, Oh, you've got 30 minutes go jam something in really quick. Um, and then I feel terrible like after that. So like it is what it is, but, um, you got to work the mo. you you have to take care of your body and whoop will tell you, this is, the let's bring it back to whoop. Like, if, if your body's aching, you're going to sleep poorly. Your HRV is going to be low Whoa. and you're not going to get a lot of slow wave sleep because your body is in pain. You have knotted muscles. So like mm-hmm. a really good time. If you're like, Hey, why don't you to do some a little bit of mobility body work type of stuff? Do it before bed long enough that it's not going to like jack your heart rate up and loosen up some of those muscles. Like there's a lot of good science and data around soft tissue work before bed and the ability to get higher quality sleep.
0: Well, on that immediate point about feeling sore, I can attest to that from a session I did recently and I had exactly that. I just I felt tired, you know, physically, I was yawning, I fell asleep straight away, but I know I was fidgeting throughout the night because my hip was sore and, you know, and I just, uh, the data, the data back there the next day, going back to all of that stuff around movement and mobility. I mean, I, you know, I totally agree that as you get older, you need to spend more. You spend more time working on the framework than you do on the, on the bodywork than you do on the engine, don't you? You know, if you've been if you've been like you or me and we've been doing an endurance sport for for you know. Dozen or more years, you've got a pretty good engine anyway. You're really just polishing it most of the time rather than building it. But exactly, the, bod- the bodywork is—it's like having an old Ferrari, isn't it? Where the engine's beautiful, but the bodywork's rusty and bits are falling off, and the suspension doesn't work. Equally, if we spend more time doing our mobility and we get into some breathing exercises as well, and um, mm-hmm. then we're actually activating the sympathetic nervous system and that's then going to introduce more recovery that's going to help with our hrv that's going to help with our sleep and getting into the slow wave sleep so you know we can combine a lot of these things to build in a really good recovery strategy can't we
1: absolutely yeah breath work is another great one i'm glad you touched on it it's so easy to do it really doesn't require a lot of time um i think most people probably breathe incorrectly anyway. like that's another thing, like focused breathing, whereas people are just kind of like panting away. So um, I think there with anything that, you know, there has to be a sort of intentionality about it. Mm. And in mindlessness um, is where the injuries come in. And I see it run so wild in endurance where people are like, I got to get this mileage in. And they shut their brain off and they forget about the quality of the, t- of the movement um, that they should be putting in. Um, like think about the breathing too, like keep checking in. Um, you know, you can keep getting better as, as you get older. I know, I don't know who would argue with that. You can't, but like I row way better now, um, after my actual like rowing career than I did when I was rowing. Um, and part of that is because of, all the time you put into supplemental work and building these things you didn't even know, like, you know, building your posterior chain, building your midline, understanding you know, scapular retraction, you know, diaphragmatic breathing, like all this stuff that like when you're young, you're just like, ah, oh, just go out and wing it. Um, you can become a like a, a true like weapon as you get older, when you start to master all these other things, particularly the breath work, because it is like you said, most people live in a sympathetic state. They're just oversaturated, just going from here to here to here to here. You got to reset the system, bring the heart rate back down. Otherwise it's going to be really hard to sleep.
0: Yeah. I got those the wrong way around actually. Didn't I sympathetic is uh, it's okay. Uh, we came back to it? Yeah, we did. Thanks for correcting me. Symp- sy- for those, for those who are listening and thinking what he's got it wrong. Sympathetic is fight or flight. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. And it's more of the f- parasympathetic state that we need to be in. Um, I touched on some of the research that you've done there's there's an awful lot going on you talked about first responders I think have you not got a research study going on in some of the hospitals for people working on the front line um there's there's an awful lot of collaborations that you've got now isn't there and the data mm-hmm. that you're picking up from that is huge
1: yeah it's a lot is still um, you know being published and in review um but yeah you know this has been a big pillar of what we're trying to do in our thought leadership, uh, group and research and even in our tactical group. So working with different military divisions, we have worked with, you know, lots of different military groups over time and that's just expanding. Um, so understanding that understanding, you know, undergraduate, uh, collegiate students and graduate students like the resiliency during COVID, you know, um, and during times like this, surgeons in high pressure environments uh yeah the frontline workers so we're really we have some really great partners in in this work um stuff on breath work you know like all these things that are going to come out on uh, the next let's say a year and multiple years um because whoops such a because we're validated it's validated device you can do so much cool research around it so, Kristen Holmes, our uh, VP of Performance Science, has done an amazing job building out these relationships and and all these really cool projects so um, as as they get finished up and published, you know we 're going to be talking about them
0: we'll go back to the breathwork a little bit I, I remember being on a on a Facebook discussion. somebody posted, "Can breathing improve performance and of course, everybody jumped on and said. Uh, assuming that he was talking about, can you improve VO2 max by, uh, I think they assumed it was about improving VO2 max and it was about using these little um, breath breathing gadgets that that sort of restrict your breathing and strength your lungs. And there was quite a few people, I would say 50% were saying, no, that's rubbish. You know, this is the Your lung size is that, blah, blah, blah. But I absolutely agree. And from my own experience and from coaching, you breathing is a way to, you can use the, I think most people, um, don't breathe properly. Like you say, you see a lot of mouth breathers out there. If you walk around, you know, just observing society, you see a lot of people that just habitual mouth breathers for a start. And then you see a lot of people that if you, if you sit in a class or ask a class of people to take a deep breath in, the majority of them will lift the shoulders and expand the rib cage rather than through the stomach. Um, they don't use the diaphragm effectively. Um, learning to do all of that and learning to control um, your HRV. And I think there is, there's quite a bit of data, isn't it? To show how breathing can, um, can help boost HRV. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's, there's some other things there. And then, and then, surely, in my mind, if you're doing all of that, and it's helping to improve your sleep because you're breathing more efficiently, and it's helping to improve your deep sleep and your recovery, then that leads to an improved performance. So, actually, it might not be a direct improvement, but sleep, uh, breathing, and breathing better definitely improves performance, and not just not just as an athlete. I mean, let's face it: most of the people who are using Whoop are uh, training. Maybe one to two hours a day. So there's another 20 to 20, 22 to 23 hours when they're not training. And that's the bit that we should mm-hmm. be focusing on improving, really.
1: Absolutely. I think you just nailed it. It's um, all the other stuff you're doing outside of the training session is really the stuff that matters, right? That's one, that's how you get fitter outside of the work that you do. How are you recovering from all that hard work you, you put in? Um, you know, how the breathing piece is so easy. Uh, so it's, find something that works again find what works for you um is it some sort of meditation with a little bit of breathing is it some sort of yoga is it mobility with breathing um things like that you know this is actually where i i think there's lots of good players in the crossfit space um that can you know help you accomplish multiple things like Ramwad's a great um I personally use it as like a sort of like meditative shutdown and there's mm-hmm. like a focus on breathing while doing like pretty passive mobility. Um, when I really need to like work, work on myself, I'll work on myself. But, um, you know, it's a really good way to kind of like close out a day. Uh, you put the baby down and you get a little bit of time to just kind of focus and, and mm-hmm. let it out. So um, figuring again, putting together your sort of perfect mixture of the day. When's good? When's the best time for you to train? When's the best time for you to start it? Winding it down. Um, again, it, it's it's a bit of trial and error. But if you are measuring it and entering these data points, you're going to find out if it's working or if it's not working.
0: Mm. Yeah, I definitely think that you know um, one of the things that I've learned from the Whoop is. That initially I would look at the numbers, look at the HRV, look at the resting heart rate, and be focused on those numbers. But what I've learned over the four years is that it's the behavioural change um, is probably more important than the numbers itself. So it doesn't matter whether I've got a higher or lower HRV than you, or what my resting heart rate is, or you know how many days of red or green I've had. It's what behavioural changes has it has it introduced that have led to me leading a healthier, more consistent and balanced life.
1: Yeah, I'll give you the good example here. So um when I first got on Whoop, I would say it's probably near my fittest, like in my life. So in 2017, you know, you can be a coach and uh I was just starting business school and I basically been training, I don't know, two, or three times a day, super focused on nutrition, sleeping so much. Like my heart rate variability was like 50. And over time, basically over the course of, I don't know, three years, um, I started training less significantly. Let's say I got an hour, maybe 90 minutes um, away from the endurance stuff, like a lot of CrossFit um, type stuff. And my all I made were behavioral changes. And my heart rate variability baseline went from 50 to 100. Wow. And then I had a kid in you know, the pandemic, and now it's back to 60 but you know, like that it's imp- It's kind of cool to see these like seasons of life told through Whoop data. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you can be super fit and yet you can still improve your numbers. So what I thought was hundred percent wasn't a hundred percent. Um, exactly that sort of thing. And, you know, really the water intake, a big thing was like, how much protein was I taking in during the middle of the day? You know, like I'm a big guy. I'm like six, seven, 230 pounds. Um, So I'm like, I got to eat enough food, but I started going heavier on like veggies and plant stuff in the middle of the day. And I had significantly more energy throughout the rest of the day, instead of like, kind of like crashing at like two, three. So again, that, that stuff showed up in my data. Um, so playing around with, I would say one thing at a time, once you, once you have established your baseline, tinker with one Mm -hmm. thing, don't throw five things in and say, Oh, I wonder which of these is the thing that's helping or hurting one thing, try it. If it's good, keep it. You don't have to measure it anymore. Try something else.
0: Yeah. I love it. Just on somebody asked me to ask you this question. And and if there's, if there's some sort of corporate reason why you can't say it, then, then that's fine. But are there metrics that you're measuring with Whoop at the moment? So like we talked about the respiratory rate and how you didn't used to publish that and then you started publishing. Are there things that you measure now? I'm not sure what they might be because you seem to have covered most things that, that aren't currently displayed or shared with the users that you might consider sharing at a later date?
1: Um, no, it's, uh, it's very transparent right now. Um, the app is always evolving. And when new things come out, then, um, they become available. So, uh, respiratory rate was honestly the only thing that wasn't in the app, but it was always in the web dashboard. I know that most people don't ever log into like whoop.com and sign in. Um, but there's a whole separate dashboard that you can kind of go in and look at your data on longer trends than a week. So you can look mm-hmm. at, you know, like your last six months, three months, month, couple weeks. Um, and it's pretty cool too. So, the respiratory rate was always there, um, but bringing it into the app um, was a you know a smart decision.
0: Yeah, I'd second that actually, because uh, you're right. This there's probably about another fifty percent's worth of data, and for those people who are data geeks, you can start to track trends. And if you if you're keeping your your training data more detailed on training peaks, and you can look at how how the Data that you're collecting from the whoop and your training data correspond. And again, what works and what didn't work. You know, did you actually get fitter and make improvements when you were training less and and doing more quality work? Or, or you know, and did 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 that high volume week actually have negative impacts in your overall training? Uh, Pretty fundamental lessons to to learn, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So let's let's wrap up then, Mike. Can we think of a few things that? So if you if you're not using whoop already. What are the three things that you're going to get out of using Whoop? Just to summarize, because I think we've covered most of them. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you're going to understand how much sleep you're actually getting, and you're going to understand the quality of that sleep, how much REM sleep you're getting, how much slow sleep you're getting, how much time you're actually awake. So most people overestimate on average between 60 and 90 minutes more than they're actually getting. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you said, you're in bed for eight hours, you're really are getting six. Um yeah. You know, what are the things that once you do have loop in your me- once you measure that you can improve it. What's the sleep environment like? What am I doing to mess this up? Basically, how can I stay asleep uh, more soundly? Um, so that makes a huge difference in your ability to show up the next day and be ready for whatever. So um, understanding how to improve the sleep to improve your recovery, right? So as a byproduct, heart rate variability. Just by definition, is you know how ready your heart is to uh, receive signals from the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches, which is more or less can you respond to any stimulus that's thrown at you, um, and the higher that number relative to your base on the better. So um, the behavior modification. So there's literally nothing else out there that you can use to measure the effects of your behaviors. So could be you know you do CBD oil at night or melatonin or you're on a paleo diet or you're on a vegan diet or any of these, literally the list goes on and on and on. Um, And seeing how that affects your quality of sleep, your recovery um, and and positively or negatively helps your life, you know, impacts your life. So you need to, you need to understand these things just for longevity and peace of mind to some degree. You know, we're, we are still in a pandemic and better understanding the things that kind of keep you grounded and a little more neutral than living in this oversaturated sympathetic state is really helpful. And then measuring how hard your body is working. Like it's, it's a cool thing to look at and and understand because what I I can tell you over years of looking at data, um, working with elite athletes and teams that some of the highest strain days are technically recovery days where people are like, Oh, I'm going to go shopping, I'm going to run all these errands. And it was supposed to be a recovery day. Yeah, yeah. And guess what? They're more toasted than when they went into it. So, um understanding like how hard things that you in your mind are saying this isn't hard. But if you're just constantly moving, it wears you down and that adds up over time. So, um whether you're a serious athlete or you're just someone that's looking to, you know, play a couple of good holes of golf on the weekend. Uh, you know, this is for you. And it's really all about just improving overall well-being in your life.
0: Per that point about um, those rest days that turn out to be the high strain days, I recall asking many people, you know, what's the best day for you to, uh, to have off from training next week? Well, Tuesday's probably a good day because I've got to be up at five. I need to get the train to London. I've got meetings all day. I've got to rush across town here. I'm getting the eight o'clock train back, so I'll be back at 10. So there's no way I can do any training. But actually, the amount of stress that's generated through all of that travel and those meetings is way higher than a couple of hours on the bike.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's you're probably waking up under-recovered. You woke up early. Yeah, and it's nonstop. If If your schedule's that nonstop, you're probably dehydrated not eating what you need to just grabbing what you can, when you can. Um, And all that, you know, is going to increase strain faster. It's going to be hard on your body. Once you get dehydrated, man, just everybody drink more water. (laughs) Like um, once, once you, that goes dry, everything gets harder and everything is just Mm. worse. So you can't underestimate how valuable, this you know consuming water early and often is
0: yeah the uh, even if you're not exercising i guess the re- your resting heart rate because you're constantly on the move during the day will be higher so the total number of heartbeats you've had throughout the day and the calories burned will show a lot more activity than than mm-hmm. just um resting and training sessions wouldn't it for sure what about what about for whoop users i guess that um most users of most products only use about 10 or 15 percent of the features and they're missing out on some of the low hanging fruit if there was one thing that you think that most whoop users aren't making the most of would you have any insight on that
1: uh first off everything is clickable you can swipe up on basically everything um so you know you can toggle the screens like Make sure you're swiping up to see your trends, understanding kind of where your numbers are bouncing around. Uh, Are there days where you are typically more under-recovered? Just kind of understanding the ebbs and flows of your own data and like really utilize the journal. Um, And if you think there's too many questions in there, um, you have the option to edit it. So if you just want to measure one thing, do that. Because knowing one thing is better than knowing zero things. Because if you put too many things on a list, you're never going to end up, you know, inputting all those uh, journal answers. So create a manageable list of a few things you want to measure, go with that. So um, I would say, always say start small, learn something, and then you can expand on that.
0: Yeah, I have, the first question that I get asked is, did I travel yesterday? Now, of course, in the last year or so, we haven't been doing any traveling. So that's been a constant, no, no, no. However, I, What I have known and understood is that when I have travelled, then my HRV is typically down, particularly if it's been a long haul flight. So there's maybe also things that you can put in your journal for certain times. You know, when we when we get back to normally start travelling, add it back in again, but you know, take it out for times when you know you're not going to be doing any of that.
1: Yeah, make sure that you know the things you're answering aren't just in there out of being lazy and not taking them out. Um, You know, whatever's relevant to your life at the moment. Um, measure those things.
0: Well, listen, everybody, uh, that was Mike Lombardi from Whoop. I am have no financial skin in the Whoop game, right? I am an affiliate. And if you want to, um, try out the Whoop, having listened to this podcast, what I can say is I get a little financial benefit from that if you try it, but that's not the reason for being a Whoop affiliate. I've been using Whoop, having paid for it with my own money for four years now. And I can say that the behavioral changes that Mike and I have talked about today have been huge. And as I get older, um, living a better quality of life is far more important to me than doing more training. Um, Again, things that we've talked about today. So please please don't rely on some of the reviews that you've read. Try it yourself and start to learn more about yourself. I can't say how much benefit you will get from it if you have an open mind, but you have to try it. And I would implore you to try it because it will be of positive benefit. And if you find that it isn't, then please come back and take me to task. Um, But only if you find it isn't of any benefit. So you need to give it a bit of time as well. You need to give it at least three to six months, I think. It's not something that you can test and try effectively in just a week. On the button there, Mike? Nailed it. (laughs) <laughs> great listen mike lombardi from whoop thank you very much for joining me today i've really appreciated the uh, the time that you spent with us uh, you've certainly answered a few questions that i've had and hopefully our listeners who've got whoop or are thinking about it have um got a bit more insight as well so really appreciate your time awesome really happy to, to uh top on with you okay take care mike and listeners thanks again for being here big thank you then to Mike for joining me on this week's high performance human podcast you can find links to just about everything we chatted about in the show notes and just a reminder about our high performance human course starting in a few weeks if you're interested in being part of this exciting development please email beth at the triathloncoach.com or look for a link in the show notes below That's all for this week, but we'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.